I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. When the topic of pets come up, it's only a matter of time before the standard question is posed. Are you a cat or dog person? Me? Well, while I like dogs and we get along great, I really love cats. Like, I love them so much, I recently became a single dad, three cat household. Yes, it's never a dull moment at my house. Later this hour, we'll invite folks from both camps, cats and dogs, to share their stories about what pets mean to them. We'll learn how caring for dogs changed one man's life and meet a few folks who have dedicated their lives to caring for and finding the perfect forever homes for our four-legged friends. But first, the fastest supercomputer in the world lives right here in Tennessee. And if that sounds like science fiction, well, it's not. A new machine at Oak Ridge National Laboratory about two and a half hours east of Nashville runs on such high speeds that it can get this, perform more than a quintillion calculations per second. What does that even mean? Joining us to answer that and more is WPLN News Director Emily Siner and Justin Witt the director at the Oak Ridge Leadership Computing Facility. Welcome to you both to This is Nashville. Justin, let me start with you. Confession, I really geeked out preparing for today's show, and I read about this new supercomputer, Frontier, the world's first exascale computer, and it has 1.1 exaflops. Okay, what? What are exaflops and exascales? Uh. Good question, uh, and uh, before we start, thanks for having me uh, to talk about Frontier today. So uh, an exaflop, uh, exa means, uh, you know, it's a, it's a number, it's one with 18 zeros after it, so a really large number. Okay. Uh, and flops stands for floating operations per second, but these are basically just uh, doing, uh, you know, taking one number and multiplying it by another number or adding one number to another number and subtracting one number from another. So that's what we mean when we say operation. So uh, this computer is capable of multiplying one number by another number, uh, you know, uh, a one with 18 zeros behind it times in a single second. Wow. Uh, which is is pretty amazing. That is very amazing. So apparently it would take the entire population of the earth more than four years to solve what Frontier can do in one second. Justin, is that correct? That is correct. And it's it's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? Very, very mind-blowing. I mean, why on earth do we need this kind of computing power? So, you know, there's a, there's a wide application space here. Um, you know, we normally have about... Um, four times more requests to use the system than we can actually provide uh, time on the system for. Uh, these applications, you know, we're a Department of Energy lab, so these applications are uh, obviously uh, materials and energy focus, uh, new energy sources, new ways of storing energy, new materials for things like, uh, you know, for things like solar, uh, solar cells. Um, and, uh, but, you know, we also have, uh, uh, a lot of health applications. Uh, you know, our, our other supercomputer, uh, Summit, has been on the front lines of battling uh, COVID uh, and has been used a lot for a variety of disease diagnosis and prognosis. Now, Emily, this is a bit of an obsession for you, right? I don't know if I would call it an obsession, but I, Oak Ridge has fascinated me for many, many years. Well, how did you come to learn of this world, computing world of computing happening at Oak Ridge? 
I think I, I first learned about Oak Ridge uh, because when I moved to Nashville, my boyfriend at the time was living in Oak Ridge and doing research there. So I would drive out there a lot and kind of tucked into the hills of East Tennessee, you know, before you get to Knoxville is this town with this uh, really fascinating history that many people in Tennessee know, but prob- I'm sure many don't. Um, Oak Ridge was founded as a top secret government facility where uh, uranium was enriched for the atomic bomb during World, World War II. Hmm. So fast forward, you know, 70 years from that, I, this is when I kind of uh, started going to Oak Ridge a lot and realized that there's just some pretty groundbreaking research happening across the board, but especially with the supercomputers, you know, the fastest ones in the world are constantly being made there. Um, and it just really captured my imagination. So have you seen a supercomputer before? Yes. Um, actually, not the one at Oak Ridge. Uh, so maybe, Justin, I can take a tour sometime. But um, I, I saw one at the, the supercomputer at the University of Illinois, which is where I went to college. There's a, a, been a supercomputer there called Blue Waters. And it's really not that much to look at. It's just a giant room filled with these things that, to my untrained eye, look like servers. Mm. It's not like when I envision like science fiction computers, you know, holograms and things like that. Like the the user interface is very simple. It's it's the computing power and the raw power that is so impressive. Um, and one of the things that I learned really early on as I was doing uh, reporting on the supercomputer at Oak Ridge is that the the iPhone that we have in our pocket today, this was actually 2014, so so several years ago, but the iPhone that we had in our pockets was faster than the fastest supercomputer in the 1980s. So wow. these are huge, you know, mega scale physical machines, but over time they get smaller and smaller and smaller and the consumer products get faster and faster. Wow, that's interesting. I want to talk about that a little bit later. But we pulled a clip from way back in the archives. This is from a story on supercomputers you did in 2014 when you were a reporter. The then project director at Oak Ridge, Buddy Bland, was talking about a previous supercomputer called Titan, which was the fastest in the world at that time. Here's how he described it. You walk into the computer room, and you have a computer that's the size of a basketball court. And it makes as much noise as a jet engine. And it uses as much electricity as a small town. You know, it it's almost feels like it's alive and that it has kind of a, a heartbeat and a pulse. Okay, as much energy as a small town, that's a lot. Is the energy consumption for these machines a concern for you, Justin? Yes, it is a concern. Uh, they, they, they use quite a bit of energy. Um, you know, when we started looking at breaking that exaflop barrier back about 12 years ago, uh, energy efficiency was one of the top three concerns for the computer. At that time, uh, the research said that this this computer would use you know somewhere between 100 and 200 megawatts mm. uh, to reach to breach that exaflop barrier, uh, and we've been able to do that for about 15 megawatts. So still a lot of energy, but there's a lot of emphasis. Uh, from investments through the federal government and from partnerships, public-private partnerships with with industry to uh, reduce the amount of energy that these systems use. And they've made a tremendous amount of progress. What what type of adjustments did you make for the new machine? So one thing that Oak Ridge has kind of led the way in is using graphical processing units for the compute power. Uh, these are very similar to the GPUs that you would have in your in your laptop or your your desktop at home, except for the fact that we've you know customized them to do tremendous amounts of computation 
for, for a relatively small amount of power. Uh, the other thing is there's been a lot of work that goes into making sure that anytime any part of the system is not being used, that it goes to its lowest energy state. Uh, and these two things together have, have, have netted us a lot of, uh, uh, of energy savings on the, on the big systems. So let's get back to what this supercomputer is being used for. What have researchers been asking for? So, you know, the biggest thing is, is time. Uh, you know, mm. you can think of super supercomputers like any other large scientific instrument. So uh, a lot of people are familiar with telescopes uh, where a researcher comes, they write a proposal, they say, I want to study this. The proposal's peer reviewed. And, uh, you know, if it's found to have merit, they're awarded time to use that telescope. Well, in this case, they're awarded time to use the computer. And so, you know, faster systems means there's more time available on the computer. But it also means that um, it also means that that scientists can tackle bigger problems. Uh, they can add, uh, you know, more fidelity to their problems and really delve down into the governing physics of a, of a specific problem. And it means that they get their answers back a lot more quickly. So could this lead to some potential breakthroughs in medicine and climate science? This will almost certainly lead to, to breakthroughs uh, uh, across scientific domains. Uh, we have a lot of researchers currently uh, using the computer to look at um, you know, climate modeling, weather modeling. Uh, but also, as I mentioned, in the, in the health regime, we have one research team that's using uh, these supercomputers to ingest pathology reports and to look for inferences across such massive amounts of data that no human being can actually ever make these connections, but a, but a supercomputer can. You know, I could only imagine the kind of security concerns around this. How do you protect it from malicious software and viruses? Well, you know, that starts, uh, that starts in the design phase. Uh, one, in designing a secure system and putting the right security, the right encryption points in the system. Uh, but, uh, and then also uh, uh, maintaining control over the system as it's being manufactured and as, being, as it's being put together to make sure nothing's introduced at an early stage. Uh, then it becomes a matter of, of you know, mind, minding your fences, so to speak, protecting your borders. Uh, and we, you know, we have a lot of security protocols here that have proven very effective over the years and 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 keeping these systems uh, to be safe. I can imagine like anyone with nefarious intentions is really looking toward taking advantage of this. So I'm glad that you all are taking those steps. Emily, you know, why should people outside of the research community really care about this super high level level of computing? I mean, I guess for one thing, if you're a nerd like me, you will just find it fascinating to learn about what they're doing. But I'm even, in the same boat with you. Yeah, even more than that, I mean, these are government funded machines. They're very expensive. This is taxpayer money. Like, I think that's kind of a reason to care. Um, the discoveries that come from it are have very practical applications for our lives. I think what's most interesting to me is is not just the research that's being done on the computers, but the research to build the computers, like the the amount of research that went into creating an exascale speed computer as um, as Justin was saying, you know, it took more than a decade to create that and it's that kind of uh, computing machinery that will later become something that consumers can buy. Um, after a certain amount of time. Wow, that's just to think about the future 30 years from now, to have something that fast um, in my hands, 
I don't know if I'm ready for something like that. Um, you know, but this has got me thinking about global competition. You know, Justin, are there other countries who are working to have the fastest computer in their borders? Is there like some sort of arms race of computing going on? There certainly has been, uh, you know, pretty much every country in the world at this point recognizes the value of computing to economic competitiveness. Uh, you know, we, we like to think that uh, in the in the modern data deluge that the person that can learn from their their data or the country that can learn from their data the fastest is the most competitive and these supercomputers have played a big role there. Uh, the number one computer, the fastest computer before uh, Frontier was Fugaku, which was a Japanese system. Uh, before that, it was back at Oak Ridge again with the Summit supercomputer I mentioned. Uh, but there's always back and forth competition. Uh, you know, the, uh, uh, China has been a major player in supercomputing in recent years. That is Justin Witt, the director of the Oak Ridge Leadership Computing Facility. He was joined by WPLN News Director Emily Siner. Thanks to you both for being with us today. We've come a long way from floppy disks, I can tell you that much. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're switching gears. It's National Pet Appreciation Week. First up, cats. Tweet us a photo of your furry family member at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. Out here at Opry Malls in an unassuming strip mall, you'll find a rather unusual shop. It's called The Catio. It's a cat cafe, a temporary home for up to 40 cats and kittens from Nashville Cat Rescue while they wait to find forever homes. Producer Tasha A.F. Lemley took a visit, and if she hadn't already just adopted a new cat a few weeks ago, this would have done the trick. It's Bailey John's seventh birthday. She's a cat lover. So, of course, she wanted to spend it at the catio. And when I say that she loves cats, I mean it. Um, she even meowed when she came through the door. Yes, that was Bailey, I swear. Her whole, like... Her everything, her birthday theme is always kitties. She's everything's kitties, kitty um, pajamas, kitty bedspread, everything. She loves kitties. That's her mom, Ashley. Bailey wants to be a veterinarian or some kind of naturalist when she grows up. So this is a big treat for her. her dad's allergic, so she can't have a cat at home. The catio is not an ordinary shelter experience. It's kind of like a large living room or a loft apartment. There's space for interacting with the cats and letting them run around. There's chairs and tables for the humans. And for the cats, that well, let's be honest, it's all for the cats, really. Toys cover the floor. There are climbing areas and tunnels and holes in the wall where the cats can get away for a bit. What do you see in there? There's some painting stuff. I see the kitty in this little pot thing. Oh, it's food. <laughs> so there's food in there? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to get down. i got to see. Oh, well, let's shine a light in there. Let's see what we can see. So cute. And then there's a little hole over here, which is the end of the box. And then 
Wait, there's two boxes. Oh, I'm coming back out. There's even cat TV. We also have cat TV playing for them right now, so there's they can hear the birds and look at, act like they're looking out a window. Although we do have a big front window in our sunroom in the catio area there, so they can get some fresh sunlight and see strangers walking by outside. And that's Jennifer Hartman, one of the catio employees. There's a lot of cats in one place, but Jennifer knows who's who. We have big cardboard scratcher that we've got one passed out kitty on. That is Rebecca. Hi, Bree. It's a little skewed to the side, so that's why her name is Snorkel. And then we have a new Siamese kitten, I think named Pearl. We're still getting to know these new ones. So this is Smokey over here. Rennie is one of my favorites. She's just a year old little girl and she likes shoulder rides. And right now uh, we have our longest resident here so far is two and a half months. That is Asterix. Asterix has a small crooked tail that curves inward. She's nervous, but she's starting to be a little sassy. She's getting used to the place, learning to socialize. The catio's been helping on that front, but the cats aren't the only ones who benefit. You can lounge with the cats. You don't have to adopt. Just spend some time with them and get that serotonin level going good. Uh, people told me it's the cheapest therapy in town. Uh, I agree with that. It's great to work here because you get to deal with the cats all day long. It's very nice. You don't have to be planning to adopt to visit the catio. You can just hang out with the cats or sign up to volunteer or even foster. Joining me now from the Catio and Nashville Cat Rescue is Brandy Yates. Brandy, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So along with us is a VIP, a real one, Doodle. Doodle, welcome to This Is Nashville. Say kitty, kitty, kitty. Say nope. <laughs> Brandy, tell us more. Tell us more about Doodle. So Doodle actually was a TNR um, with one of the fosters. She, she came with her mom and her other two siblings. Um, super skittish at first, but now coming out and about. Um, the other two siblings have actually been already adopted out. Um, okay. Doodle, we're still waiting. She's had some suture issues from surgery, so we're still trying to get that cleared up. She's a, such a pretty one right there. A little, little Russian blue, so super sweet and gentle. Okay, I'm a cat owner. I have three. <laughs> Gary, Lisa, and Sheila, and I actually adopted <laughs> Lisa and Sheila from the catio about two months ago. Really? Yeah. What was their names? Uh, uh, Nala and Ricotta. Nala and Ricotta. Gosh. Yes. And, um, you know, I wasn't really planning to go home with two cats. <laughs> my idea was to go home with one. And my boss was intrigued and also low-key concerned when I was suddenly a cat dad, of single dad of three cats. And I have a question for you. Like, does this happen a lot with people? Do it, they come trying to get one but end up with more? It have, well, they come not expecting to take any home, and then they take one or two home. Okay. So, And then we have some that are bonded because, of course, kittens kittens are like kids. They need a friend. And that's, you know, when you have a kitten, you really need a friend with the kitten. So otherwise, they're the, they're the terrible little crazy cats that tear up everything. So we always recommend with kittens, you have to have – you need a friend just because, I mean, they get bored, and they are nocturnal, and they – Get in trouble at nighttime, then parents can't sleep, and yeah, so. Oh, yeah. I often hear the Cat Olympics happening yes. at 2, 3 a.m. <laughs> it's like the WrestleMania in my house sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> That's something. So I noticed that you all have cats with special needs at the catio. We don't really have them at, at the catio with special needs. I'm actually the special needs foster for National Cat Rescue. Um, okay. I take home all the ones that are, I would say if you want to, cat that's not normal come to my house because I have paralyzed cats. I have cats that can't use the bathroom. They You have to physically make them pee. Um, cats that neural issues from FIP, um, you know, tri tripods, one-eyed one cats, you know, just at the catio, we'll take the one-eyed cats and the tripods because there's no actual daily maintenance on them or care for them. Um, they do still consider them special needs though because they are 
missing a limb or an eye of some sort. Why is that so important to you? Because nobody wants the special needs. Nobody wants to, I mean, who wants to, like when I travel, I take my special needs with me because they have to pee and I have to make them pee, you mm -hmm. know, and they kind of poop whenever or wherever they feel like pooping because yeah. they can't feel anything, you know, and nobody wants them. So I take them. Somebody's so. got to love them. You got to love them. So. Yeah. It, but it's a lot of hard work and it's a lot of dedication because it's not that one time vet visit and then you're done. It's multiple, you know, vet mm -hmm. visits. I mean, there's one cat, Ellie May. I had her. She's a self-mutilator. She was at the vet every three times a week at Apache, you know, so I'm driving from Mount Julia to Apache three times a week, you know, because she literally just mutilates herself. Mm. So she got adopted, though. Yay. Yay. <laughs> so let's talk about fostering. You know, some people think that adopting one, or in my case, two cats helps places like the Catio, but fostering offers a little different sort of help. How does fostering really help out rescues like yours? Well, I mean, there's so many cats that are just outside and strays, and it's kitten season right now, and it's kind of a nightmare. I mean, in Nashville, Cat Rescue is getting 40 plus emails a day of, I found this cat, I found this kitten, can you help? Just because you can't adopt one and keep one you can still help by just fostering it and taking it in for the couple weeks you know or months to get it vaccinated wait till it gets and spayed and neutered and then you know send them to the caddy and they get adopted you know fostering is huge we are desperately in need of so many fosters right now all right we don't have any you all know right. and the cats aren't stopping no they're, <laughs> they're not, still coming they're not gonna know. stop it's a part of life so anybody yeah. listening just know that Fostering is hugely important right now. now. And it's and all the bills are paid for. You literally just have to love them. And Nashville Cat Rescue provides all the food. They provide the litter. They give you the teaching, the knowledge. They give you everything that you need. You just have to love them. Well, Nashville, you heard that. It costs nothing to love. So let's go ahead and do that. I'd like to introduce my next guest. Laurie Green is the founder and director of Safe Paw, or the Southern Alliance for People and Animal Welfare. Laurie. Yes. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So I see you're here with a little furry friend, Oliver. Oliver. Oliver came when um, he was abandoned in a neighborhood. And they, uh, some people doing TNR kept trapping him. Mm -hmm. And the neighbor said, well, he's owned. And the owner said, we don't want him. Mm. So they took him in and called me. Because he is the poster boy for the cat that no one wants. You know, he's an adult. He's a black cat. You know, but he is a perfect cat. He is chill. He is loving. He is sweet. He is just, he literally is a perfect cat. He looks like a smaller version of my Gary. Really? Yes. Yes. And he's calm and lets you hold him. Oh, I, I just want to grab him right now, but we have to do the show. So, <laughs> you know, you at Safe Paw, you, you work at taking care of pets and people, specifically yes. the unhoused community. Yes. How important are pets to our, our unhoused neighbors? There's really no difference in the importance to those housed and those unhoused. It's unconditional love. It's just harder when you're not housed. Mm -hmm. Obviously, in the summertime, you start with external parasites with fleas. Um, and it's just when you have no money, you have no transportation, it's very hard to be a pet parent. That's where we step in. We first start with getting them spayed or neutered because that is critical. Get them vaccinated, get all that done. But then we stay with people. Every year we'll take them and get them vaccinated, especially people that get housed in subsidized housing. Mm -hmm. You have to recertify for that apartment every year. And part of your recertification means that your pets are up to date on flea prevention, on shots. So we help people with that. 
How does fostering play into what you guys are doing at Safe Paw? Well, with us, fostering is twofold as far as needs go because so many of our people have to go to the hospital. They have to go into rehab. Um, they may need to go into the hospital for a while to get their meds back centered where they can enjoy and enjoy being in their mind. Mm-hmm. So we take in their animals and foster them. We get called by a lot of agencies. You know, we had to admit John Smith to the hospital. Can you come foster his dog? Um, but we also have animals surrender to us. So we need fosters both long-term that are going to go back to their home and short-term, I'm sorry, long-term that need to be adopted out. I apologize. I mm-hmm. said that wrong. And then short-term, the animals that are going to go back to their person. How do you maintain the health of pets who are without a home? Make sure they're vaccinated. Make sure they're dewormed. Yeah. Um, just the same way you do pets inside. It's just more challenging. Um, the flea prevention is more critical. Um, the vaccinations, keeping them current is more critical. Um if there's a sore something, making sure that you jump on it and not let it linger because mm-hmm. outside, not being able to stay clean, it can go from bad to worse quickly. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. This hour is all about pets and we're just talking about the importance of pets for our unhoused neighbors. My next guest is a vet who actually works to provide treatment for unhoused pests. Pests. Pets. Sorry, not pests. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Renetta Perkins owns the Little Urban Vet Clinic here in Nashville. Dr. Renetta, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so glad to be here. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. So tell me, why is providing this kind of care for unhoused folks and their pets important to you? So we are the only vet clinic directly downtown, and we um, started to notice a lot of uh, unhoused uh, pet owners that would walk up and down the street along where the clinic is, and sometimes they would come by and need help for their pets. So uh, I don't really advertise this, but I'm advertising it now. Um, Typically, we have a policy that if someone comes to us that... um, does not have a home and they have a pet that needs care, if they can provide the office visit, we will cover the cost of care. So we've had pets come in that have been injured. So there was a a dog that fell from um, some scaffolding down an incline and, um, and the owners came here and we changed the bandages for them. We gave them antibiotics and pain medication. So we provided the care as long as they could show that they genuinely were going to care for this pet. So it was it was important to them. So it was important to us. Um, and that's just really important to me because I want them to be able to keep their pet and I don't want their pet to, you know, truly become homeless and, um, and for for that person that needs that pet for their well-being to have that relationship break down. So keeping that vet healthy is important for us. What inspired you to become a vet? I have just always loved animals, a love for uh, for medicine um, and people. So I'm I'm very much uh, people focused in my clinic. We really want them to feel like uh, they can trust us, and that is the best way to um, encourage them and help them provide the best care for their pet if they have a great relationship with us, the owners. So we we definitely um, the people are important to us. Now correct me if I'm wrong, but you're the only black woman who owns a veterinary clinic in Nashville. Is that right? That's correct. 
I am. And um, I opened up my clinic in uh, the beginning of 2020, so right before the pandemic. And we have, the community has really responded well to us. We've had lots of, you know, we're just doing really well. And um, I just appreciate the love. And it was important to me to um, make sure that I'm representing um, and showing kind of, I actually had uh, some students come a couple of weeks ago from a Montessori school, uh, a couple African-American children, and they just wanted to see what it looks like. And I didn't have that when I was a kid. Um, and so it's just, I want to make sure that people see my face and know that um, come see me and, and that I'll take excellent care of their pets. And I really care about them uh, and I'll listen to all their concerns. So just wanted to um, make sure that I am um, showing another side of veterinary medicine, which can be a very, um, mm-hmm. you know, homogenous uh, field and doesn't have a lot of diversity. So right. just trying to kind of do what I can. Now, I just paid over $400 for checkups <laughs> and flea guard for my yeah. three cats. Now, Dr. Renetta, what about pet owners who have a difficult time paying all the fees and costs that come with pet health care? How can they make sure that their pets are healthy when it can be expensive to find care? So uh, it's kind of twofold. So um, making sure that they're getting annual care or twice annual if they have seniors. So what can happen is when you fall behind in that wellness care and just maintaining your pet, uh, you get into situations where they you, you haven't taken them in several years. And when you go, there's lots of things going on. And then it's a lot more expensive versus if you're doing like routine screenings and you're making sure you're doing blood work annually and making sure you're staying on top of any um, concerns. But sometimes no matter what you do, you're taking them all the time. Um, you get hit with a, with a sudden illness in a pet. And so for instance, I can speak about my own dog. I actually just picked her up from Nashville Veterinary Specialist where she was hospitalized um, for almost a week and um, for kidney failure. That was a sudden, she'd been previously completely healthy. So I do understand. And the cost was, you know, it was, it was heavy, mm-hmm. but um, thankfully I was able to cover that. And so I do understand the stress that clients, um, that what happens to them when they, when they are distressed about the bill. Um, so we always make a point here that um, I always want to create a plan with the pet parent on what we're going to do for their pet within their finances and what is comfortable for them. So no judgment, you know, if they can only do this today and we have to do something different next time, mm-hmm. that's perfectly fine. So that's really, really important is to not make people feel ashamed uh, when they are financially restricted or make them feel like when they have waited too long, make them feel guilt about that. It's just, we have to meet them where they are and help encourage them to be the best pet parents that they can be, particularly so their pets don't end up in um, relinquished to these shelters. And also so the owners themselves don't end up homeless. Like I don't want them to not pay their rent because they're paying their vet bills. I Mm -hmm. want them to let's, let's find a happy uh, place to meet in the middle. Mm -hmm. Now, Brandy H you work with Nashville cat rescue. Can you give us a sense of how many cats here in town need help right now? Oh my Lord. It's endless. (laughs) We need the supercomputer from the first point, from the first segment to help us figure that out, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, like I said, they get about 40 plus emails a day on, it could be 
an adult. It could be a litter of kittens. It could be a pregnant mom. I mean, that's just National Cat Rescue. That's not all the other rescues out there that are trying to intake. We had somebody call the catio this morning and begging for the catio to intake a cat. And we're not an intake. We're an adoption facility with National Cat Rescue. And she said she's called 25 rescues and nobody's, everybody's saying they're full because everybody is full right now. Mm -hmm. And that's, if we don't have fosters, we can't do intakes. We get about the same number of calls. Yeah. So, I mean, fosters make rescue life amazing. If we don't have the fosters, though, we can't save any more animals. I always say that fosters are the bridge between an animal being surrendered Mm -hmm. and an animal finding a new home. Mm -hmm. You're that bridge that gets them across. And without you, they stay on the other side. With you, they can cross over into a permanent home. We can only do so much. We can get them adopted. I mean, at the Catio, we've adopted a, close to 2,500 cats in two and a half years. Wow. You know, fully vetted, 100% vaccinated. You know, that's a lot of cats. Mm-hmm. But I do know that I have come across some people that have said we don't want to adopt from a rescue because we don't want y'all, because they think we're profiting money. We're not profiting money. We're probably, I mean, if the cat gets sick in the process, then we're actually losing money, you know, and it, our adoption fee is only $125. You can't even get your cat spayed for $125. That is Brandy Yates from the Catio. She was here with Doodle. Also joining her was Laurie Green, director of Safe Paw here with Oliver, or Ollie, as I like to call him. <laughs> we were also joined by Dr. Renetta Perkins of the Little Urban Vet And Clinic. I can't wait to meet Dr. Perkins. I've been waiting to meet her. Well, let's... I'd love for you to come by. I am. I'm going to... What is the best <laughs> time, Dr. Perkins? Um, you can call me literally anytime. Um, okay. We have a text line. If you if you kind of have a busy schedule, okay. you can text to 615-601-1901. Any, literally, anytime. And we're we're going to let you all handle that. Thank okay. you so much. I'm, I'm so, going to come see you. I'm so glad that we were <laughs> able you. to make yet another connection here at This Is Nashville. Thank you all so much for being on the show today. Thank it's you. It's been a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. After the break, it's going to be all dogs. We'll learn how caring for dogs changed one's man, one man's life and how being a geezer guardian can help bring you happiness. Don't forget to tweet us your favorite stories about your pets at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Kaliole Colonna, and this is Nashville. Today's show is all about pets, the beautiful, loyal, and sometimes very frustrating little animals we call family. Before the break, we were talking about cats. Now it's time for dogs. I'd like to introduce my next guest, whose story is an inspiring one. Ian McClellan is the owner of Set Free Dog Training. He joins us now. Ian, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to have you with us. So take us back to 2009. This was before you got into dog training. What was your life like back then? So in 2009, I was a raging alcoholic, out of control, doing construction work and living paycheck to paycheck just to feed an addiction. Would you mind sharing what your mental health was like at this time? Lost. Mm. Just... Living for feeding my addiction. Did you search out to find help from counselors? I had done a couple treatment programs and 
I had made half-hearted attempts to kick the habit to get right, mm-hmm. and it all kind of came to reality when May 6, 2009, when I had my wreck. Tell me about that. So May 6, 2009, I was drinking and driving and unfortunately caused the accident that cost a young lady her life. I was sentenced to 22 years in the Department of Corrections. When you first were incarcerated, what was happening in your mind? How were you thinking about how life had unfolded up to this point? I wasn't taking any responsibility for my actions. I felt like that it was an accident, that I didn't belong where I was because, like, I didn't intentionally try to hurt anybody. I wasn't, you know, I've, I had this resentment grew inside of me that I hated everybody and everything mm. because I felt like I wasn't like those people. Mm. And, you know, it took a lot to get to the point that I accepted the fact that I was just like those people because I was selfish and self-centered and cared nobody about my except for myself that night I got in that vehicle. Now, and when you were incarcerated going through this um, perspective shift, did you see counseling out? Did you have services of a counselor then? Inside the institutions, I mean, there are counselors, but I actually went to, the prison I went to was actually inside the same county where I had grew up and went to high school. Mm. So, you know, you can fast forward from high school age to where I was that throughout that time, a lot of people that I'd actually went to school with had ended up becoming correctional officers or people that had had kids that were my age that watched me play sports in high school, ended up working at that institution. And they had this dog program, and everybody kept trying to tell me, you should get in this dog program. And again, I was so filled with just resentment and anger and denial that, like, I told them in the beginning, like, I said, I don't want to live with another human being, much less a stupid dog. Mm. And I actually got in the dog program for all the wrong reasons. What reasons were those? Well, I was getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning to go make oatmeal for 1,500 people that I couldn't stand, and these guys were getting to go work out anytime they wanted. They got to go outside when they wanted. And I kind of thought, okay, hey, can you get me in that dog program? So once you got in, what was that dog training experience like for you? It completely changed my life as far as who I am as a person, the way I look at people, the way I look at animals and the joy that they provide like the first five years of my incarceration i didn't get to see my daughter Mm -hmm. and it's coming up on the first time that i was going to get to see her and you know in that environment you can imagine you don't want to appear weak you don't want to show inner vulnerability so it's about 11 30 at night not an audible noise is made from me tears are streaming down my face because the guilt and the shame and the condemnation is just whooping me. And this dog gets out of its crate, jumps up on my bed, and licks my face dry. Mm. And I knew at that moment right there that I was all in, that I was going to do whatever I had to do to make these dogs be successful. Now, you were training dogs as service animals, right? Yes. I was training dogs for a nonprofit called Retrieving Retrieving Independence. And... Like, they taught us much more than training dogs. 
They taught us how to communicate. They taught us how to process our emotions because we would take these dogs and we would give them our all and love them. And then we would have to let them go to yeah. other people. Yeah. But, you know, in that environment where not everybody's doing the same things, they taught us how to communicate the proper way to one another. Hey, let me show you a different way to how to do this rather than just a bunch of egos filled in with, hey, you're doing that wrong. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and one of the mottos that we had was turning our captivity into freedom for others. Because each one of us put ourselves in that institution. I made the decision that night to make the choice to drive, and it was my choice to do that. The people who we train these dogs for, they didn't choose the prison they're living in. Mm. So for me, it was my way to kind of that shift to to take a life that wasn't really the best, that I hadn't done a lot of good. And while I was in a punishment situation, to give back and to start kind of making amends for my previous actions. So when you were released on parole, what gave you the inspiration to start your own dog training business? Honestly, because I had nothing. Mm. What did I have to lose? And, you know, I, I got out January 21st, 2020, and I was a 40-year-old that had was basically like a 17-year-old that had just graduated high school. I didn't have anything. I had family who supported me. I had a lot of people that loved me, but I didn't have any money. And the courage was kind of like, what do I have to lose? Like, if I fail at this, I still have nothing. Mm -hmm. I have a history in construction to where I could make a living, but that's not where my passion was. Mm -hmm. You found your passion. You found your calling. 100%. That's wonderful. This hour, we're all talking about pets. My next guest cares for dogs in their golden years. Noel Kiswini is the own, it runs Old Friends Senior Dog Sanctuary. Noel, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, having us on today. So you call yourself a geezer guardian. I love that. Tell us what is yeah. that? What is that exactly? <laughs> um, so geezer guardians, that's what we call our forever foster families. Um, so people who care for an old friend in their home are geezer guardians. I am also a geezer guardian. I have two old friends uh, that I get to take home every day. Uh, they come to work with me, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. And uh, you just provide these senior dogs with, with love and care for this last chapter of their lives. You know, I feel like when people are adopting, they often look right past the old dogs. Why is they it? They do. And it's sad. It really is sad. And, so tell me, why is it important to you to help take care of these dogs reaching the end of their lives? You know, we see it here all the time, these dogs that come in and, and they're either found as strays or their uh, owner surrenders. And people think that they just don't have a lot left to give. And so why, why bother getting attached? Um, but these dogs still have so much life to live and love to give. Um, it's, it's incredible. It really is incredible. And I think having that love from a human, uh, this is not scientifically proven, but I think it does extend their life a little bit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and our motto is that we don't concern ourselves with the quantity of time uh, that they have, but the quality of life that we can give them for that time. Um, so even if they don't have a lot longer on earth, um, we just want to make sure that they have the best 
the best end of life that they can. What do you like the most about working with senior dogs? Oh my gosh. I get to spend 40 hours a week with, with old pups. Like it's the coolest thing ever. They're so sweet. Uh, each one has their own unique personality. Um, you know, you talk to them like they're humans and they, they kind of, even though they can't, com- you know, communicate verbally with you in that way, uh, they're able to communicate with you with just the look in their eye or the actions that they perform. Uh, it's really, it's really amazing to see them come in um, in these less than ideal conditions and just evolve here, mm-hmm. just thrive. I mean, it is a sanctuary. And that sounds like a very plush retirement home for dogs. Would you say that that's accurate? Oh, definitely. Uh, We have about 125 senior dogs here at Sanctuary right now. Um, And they're all uh, each in their own rooms with other dogs. We do have a space for dogs who prefer to be on their own. Um, Dogs who are either dog aggressive or dog selective. And everyone has their access to their own yard. We have a splash pad for them. They get uh, high quality vet care, uh, physical therapies like acupuncture, chiropractic care, laser therapy. Um, It really is a sanctuary here for Mm -hmm. sure. Shuffleboard? Do you have a shuffleboard for the dogs? Not yet, but you know, that's something that we can definitely look into. Okay. (laughs) Sign me up. Um, (laughs) Now, Ian, have you ever, you mentioned it a little bit earlier about letting go of a service animal, but have you ever had to retire one? And like, how difficult is that to say goodbye? So to say goodbye to the dogs the first time was harder in my mind than I thought that it was actually going to be. Because we spent 18 months pouring our hearts out into these dogs and training them and getting them ready to go be with their forever person. And I thought it was going to be harder than it was until I seen the way that dog responded to that recipient. Mm. Until I heard the stories of the recipients talk about how they had been given their lives back. That people that are filled with anxiety that no longer fear going to Walmart that they know if their dog can do it, they can go. There was a story of a husband that said that it gave him back his life because his wife was a diabetic and he could leave the house and know that the dog would do its job and alert rather than him wondering whether his wife was going to be found dead. Mm. And to see the joy and the freedom that those dogs brought made it a whole lot easier to let go. A quick question for you. Before you did all this in, in your younger life, did you have a relationship with dogs? I had a dog, but it wasn't anything. It was the typical. I fed it. I pet it. Every now and again, we'd go for a truck ride, maybe throw a ball, but nothing like what I have now. Mm. Now, Noel, how, how tell me, how have you seen dogs help people with their mental health? You know, I... I we hear from our geezer guardians often that, you know, these dogs change their lives. Um, we say, you know, thank you so much for giving them a great home. They say, it's a privilege. It's an honor. Like this dog saved me as much as I saved him or her. Um, and I really think that just having that companionship, we see so much in people, the joy that it brings them um, to be able to give our senior dogs a soft place to land and and really just help them in out help them both out um it's really a symbiotic relationship there 
through the end of the dog's life. Got a couple minutes left. Ian, what do you want people to know about what animals and pets can do and bring to our lives? So for me, I try to live my life as much like a dog because they enjoy the moment. Mm. They don't hold resentment that you accidentally shut their tail in the door, that you forgot to feed them because the kids were going crazy. They're happy to see you every time. And for me, you know, dog spelt backward is God. Mm. And for me, it's the closest thing to unconditional love that we will ever experience on this earth. And I think that's why they are man's best friend. Noel, same to you. What do you want people to know about how animals and what they can bring to our lives? Oh, goodness. I would say just if you're looking to open your home to a dog, uh, don't overlook the seniors. Uh, they still really do have as much to give as a puppy. And um, we, if, if you are looking for a senior specifically, we eliminate the factor of costs, which I think is another reason why people overlook senior dogs. Um, we cover all medical care for the rest of the dog's life. Um, so it's really not a reason not to take in a senior dog. We take care of that. All you have to do is provide the love and they will do that to you in return. Unconditional love, unconditional patience, and unconditional adoration. I want to thank you both for being with us. Noelle Kiswini is with Old Friends Senior Dog Sanctuary. She was joined by Ian McClellan of Set Free Dog Training. Thanks to you both for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, get ready for some hot chicken. Are you hungry? Because I am. Tune in. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Limley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director, and our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Carrie Pullum, Lauren Dougal, Brandy Hodges, and of course, my three little friends, Gary, Lisa, and Sheila. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other and your pets. <laughs>